Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. U.S. equities are heading deeper into the red with the Dow Jones Industrial Index down eight-tenths of one percent after President Trump said that he was calling off his summit with North Korean leader uh, Kim Jong-un. Here to talk about the implications of this is the banker to the world. He should know about what to expect from this, as he has been in a lot of these types of negotiations. Uh, Bill Rhodes, he is the president and chief executive officer of William Rhodes Global Advisors, also the author of the book Banker to the World Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. Bill, uh, I gather you weren't all that surprised that these have become uh, somewhat complicated discussions between North Korea and uh, the U.S., but what did you make of today's announcement? First of all, it's great to be with you guys again. I'm not surprised because I know Korea quite well. I restructured their debt. I led the discussions on the Chorus FTA, the Free, the free Trade Agreement. Uh, and the North always, whether it be the grandfather who started the dynasty, Kim Il-sung, or his son, Kim Jong-il, uh, and his past to this one, they always agree to to do things on the, on the nuclear disarmament, and then they back off on it as soon as they get the goodies from us, uh, you know, in the sense of, uh, of food, grain, whatever. And so uh, I was highly skeptical from the beginning that he would be willing to give up the one thing he's got uh, which is, you know, is his nuclear weapon and missile capacity as a, as a chip uh, and agree to do a Libya type thing where, you know, uh, Gaddafi gave up everything. The question is, where do we go from here? And uh, we still have the big problem in Korea. And <clears throat> what are we going to do about it? Uh, and so I think what we have to do is lean on China, because remember on your show, I mentioned again and again, the linkage between China uh, and Korea, and I've done op-eds on it because 90% of their energy comes in from uh, China. And so if we don't get the Chinese willing right. to do the sanctions, there's there's no but, push f to go ahead with this. But the U.S. has been pushing them to do this. And North Korea, as far as I can tell, hasn't really gotten anything yet from the U.S. And China seems to be working and playing ball with the U.S. on trade negotiations. What broke down here? Why now? I think a couple of things. One, you saw uh, over the last uh, few weeks, uh, <clears throat> Kim, Kim Jong-un has made two trips to China. The Chinese are orchestrating this to a great degree, and the Chinese are using this as a pawn, a chip, in the negotiations on trade with the U.S. Uh, and I think we've been a little naive in the administration, thinking that we could get the, boast, the best out of both worlds. Because we're asking the Chinese to reverse their policy, longstanding policy of taking advantage, whether it be intellectual property, on trade, uh, and then expect, uh, you know, as we begin to push them, as we should push them, then expect that uh, we're going to get uh, Xi Jinping to push Kim Jong-un to do a deal with us. So you really can't uh, break that link between the two. And I think that if that was a view of the administration, and some people think it was, it was naive. Uh, the other thing is, I think when we deal with the Chinese, we need a common front. And all the stories you're picking up in Washington, you, you, you've got uh, uh, Mnuchin uh, and uh, Larry Kudlow in these discussions on one side, wanting to you know, be more favorable to China 
And then you, you've got Lighthizer, who is the trade uh, repre uh, representative, tough guy on trade, uh, and Peter Navarro, who always had a problem with China, on the other side with Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, in the middle. And uh, what we've got to understand is that getting Kim Jong-un to the table uh, is important, but you've got to have some preconditions there on the basis of what is his view of denuclearization. And from what I can pick up, his view is step by step, which is what the Chinese have been advocating for years with the six-party talks. And we thought we would go in there. John Bolton was saying we're going to get a Gaddafi-type deal where he just gives it up uh, for uh, you know removal of sanctions. So I think we've got ourselves a difficult situation here. And with with the trade with China is key, not only to the Chinese economy, but to our economy and the world economy. So I, I hope the administration can get its act together on how they're going to uh, work on both sides here, because there is that linkage between China and, and North Korea, and you can't uh, doubt it. The other problem we have is you have a very nice person who's president of uh, South Korea, but his one goal in life, because I know him going back to when he was chief of staff of a former president, President No, that his one goal in life is reconciliation with North Korea. And... Uh, so he'll virtually do anything to get that reconciliation. So it's a very, very difficult uh, point where we're at. And since we're talking about trade, I should mention that one of the things that I think we need to really move on, I was with uh, President, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau last week. I sat with him on the dais of the New York Economic Club. And he was making the point that, you know, uh, they'll be flexible in Canada, but also they got to be realistic. He says they'll be patient. But uh, we need a deal on NAFTA. And one of the things that troubles me is that the elections in uh, Mexico are coming up July 1st. And you have a candidate there who basically says uh, if this isn't done by the time he takes office in December, he's going to want tougher conditions. The topics are trade, political instability, not only in Asia, but also closer to home between Mexico, Canada, the United States, ongoing renegotiations of NAFTA, as well as uh, the deterioration in the Turkish lira. Here to help us understand more about this is Bill Rhodes. He is banker to the world. His book is called banker to the world, leadership lessons from the front lines of global finance. And Bill, I, I would just offer that uh, your book not only is about what you have done in the world of finance, but whom you have met, the people that you have met and interacted with. And I think that that's a key element to bring out because most action is done by people. It's not something that falls from the sky. And I'm wondering if you could just describe for us what you believe is the sort of issue when it relates to the Mexican economy and the upcoming Mexican presidential elections and the people involved. Well, this is a big election year for Latin America. We, all, we already had this debacle down in uh, Venezuela where, you know, a dishonest election where less than half the people even showed up to vote. Uh, we have Mexico, as you mentioned. Uh, we also have Colombia, and, and we have Brazil. Uh, this is the biggest election year in, in in recent history in Latin America. So what happens here is key. As far as Mexico goes, Lopez Obrador, uh, who's to the far left, uh, is running ahead in the polls. Um, now, some of the candidates have, have dropped out, and we'll have to see what finally happens. But the election is is, is basically almost a month away. It's It's July 1st. And he's made statements that uh, on two areas. One, that uh, 
that he's going to look at the the oil contracts that have been given out by the Penyon Nieto government, which has helped the Mexican economy grow, to see if they were done fairly or in a corrupt way, which is, you know, concerned people. And then the other thing is, uh, since we don't seem to be able to reach an agreement with uh, Peña Nieto uh, and Trudeau in Canada, yeah. uh, what will happen with NAFTA? And NAFTA is key to all three countries, and not only economically, but security-wise. And so it's a very concerning situation. Uh, and uh, the Mexicans are concerned. Uh, we should be concerned here. Yeah. And I know the Canadians, just having sat with, Pre- with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, on the uh, dais when he spoke last week. And by the way, I think uh, I was very much impressed because he says he'll be patient uh, to get this thing done because it's so important. Yeah. But it's got to get done. So, uh, you know, we're talking uh, about Mexico. I want to I just shift in general uh, to emerging markets. You mentioned Venezuela also. Uh, clearly, they're in a crisis of humanitarian, political, and economic proportions. The Turkish lira, meanwhile, is continuing to fall out of bed, down about 4% this, uh, today, even after the emergency rate hike yesterday by the Turkish Central Bank. Um, given your experience with restructuring debt, and helping Brazil during the uh, the EM crisis in the late 1990s, and as vice chair of senior vice chair of Citigroup, you know how significant is this? Are we heading toward another emerging markets crisis of that magnitude? I think it's a very good uh, <clears throat> it's a very good question. Uh, I was with Paul Krugman a week ago in Argentina at a conference. And he and I were talking about it, and I noticed he's come out with tweets since. Yes, he has said that it is, it's actually resonate, uh, resonates All right, with because him. he and I, I on the private sector side, he and academia were the two who called the Asian financial crisis. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, mine came out in the Financial Times article. His came out uh, with, uh, with a paper, a study. I would say there are similarities, but there are big differences. I think the similarities are, as uh, you get some of this... Uh, uh, liquidity, which has been slashing around now to get us out of the Great Recession. I've said this on your program before and on, on, on Bloomberg Television. We're going to see rates go up in the United States, which we are. The quantitative easing is being ratcheted back. And some of this search and reach for yield is, com- is going to come back and hit us. And one of the groups that took advantage of this, a number of countries in the emerging markets, borrowed heavily in foreign currency, sometimes short term, as in the case of Turkey, in the case of Argentina, longer term. And uh, those countries uh, who have fiscal deficits uh, and aren't prepared to face this, I think, could be in trouble, particularly if we see uh, the Fed continuing to raise interest rates, which I think they will, uh, and the quantitative easing uh, going out. Just having come back from Argentina, uh, President Macri uh, was very much the darling of the markets, but he has a program called Gradualismo, uh, which is gradual reform. And the problem is when you get into difficult situations, you can't be gradual about it. you got to be uh, more upfront. And I think he did the proper thing, although it was tough for him to do, to call in the IMF to get some support so he could implement the rest of the reforms. So Argentina uh, was the one uh, over the last few weeks where interest rates went up to 40%. They raised them three times. Uh, the IMF announcement came. In one week. <laughs> in one week, which caught the imagination. But Turkey, and something I said twice on Bloomberg television over the last three months. Turkey's been hanging out there because their heavy borrow is a private sector short term and they haven't moved interest rates up fast enough. And so you have tremendous pressure on the Turkish lira. 
Uh, and Erdogan keeps telling the central bank not to raise interest rates because his view of the of the of of, a, of a economics is that central banks should have low interest rates and then you won't have any inflation. Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't think Erdogan uh, ever took a course in economics, but that's another situation. And so I think that what you have here is you have the possibility of those countries uh, that could have problems. And the other element to throw in this is that if the price of oil sticks in between 70 and 80, that'll be big for the uh, oil exporters, except Venezuela, where the production has collapsed, which I forecasted my early 18 January uh, op-ed. But I think that what will happen is those countries who are importers are going to be hit. So that's kind of a triple whammy. So we just have about uh, 45 seconds here. Who is the next shoe to drop? Which nation in the developing markets? Not clear because it's going to depend also if you have an ease up in uh, uh, by OPEC uh, and the Russians are talking about maybe easing up somewhat to keep the price from uh, going too high and the Saudis haven't agreed. So it's, it's not clear, but uh, it, just in general, a lot of the African countries have borrowed very heavily in foreign currencies. And I think that uh, a number of them are oil importers, so they could have, uh, they could have problems. So we have to see how this, un- you know, this uncertainty uh, that we're facing unfolds. But it's something that needs to be watched, without a doubt. Yeah. And uh, you know, I see people on, on on TV and radio and everything saying, "Oh, this is not going to be a problem." Uh, I think it could be a problem. It depends on how ind- every individual uh, country handles it. But if yeah. you told anyone, even at the beginning of this year, that Argentina would be asking for a standby line. They'd have laughed at you. Yeah, because they had just bought those 100-year bonds. and they, Exactly. Uh, yeah. Bill Rhodes, unfortunately, exactly. we have to leave it there. We could continue for another hour. Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, author of Banker to the World, also uh, the former uh, senior vice chair of Citigroup, has been in all of these negotiations. A wonderful voice on this day. This is Bloomberg. Shares of General Motors higher today, as well as Ford Motor. General Motors is up about seven-tenths of a percent. Ford Motor up nearly one percent. This comes after the Trump administration is trying to use national security laws to consider imposing new tariffs on vehicle and automobile parts imports. Here to tell us more about this is Alan Baum. He is principal of Baum and Associates. They're based in West Bloomfield, Michigan, and he joins us now. Alan, thank you very much for being uh, with us. If these tariffs of as much as 25% on automobile imports were to be put in place, what would that do to U.S. automobile manufacturers? Oh, chaos, <laughs> because U.S. automobile manufacturers is obviously a broad term. Um, and, you know, let's take the clock back to the 1980s uh, when the Japanese were importing huge amounts of, of product into the U.S. And we had voluntary agreements, which, in fact, worked far better than, than uh, even the uh, people at the time thought. And what I mean by that is, Toyota, Nissan, and Honda at the start, and others later, uh, established production here in the U.S., 
and that it, it matters where the vehicles come from, because if you're producing here in the U.S., your supply is obviously much better than when you're trying to get product from Japan, where a lot of other markets might be trying to do it. And so the result was um, that uh, the Japanese uh, had you know, tremendous products. Uh, they were very uh, efficient and uh, really presented, presented huge uh, problems uh, for the Detroit Three. So, Alan, I'm just wondering, I'm sure after the reports uh, have come out now uh, that there will be a host of lobbyists that will head to President Trump's office and try to convince him to either go through with the tariffs or to uh, abandon them altogether. So I'm wondering, General Motors and Ford, for example, are they going to be for these or against these? Well, obviously, it depends upon, uh, you know, how they're put together, uh, how Canada and Mexico fit into all this. Um, Ford, for example, uh, brings in uh, the EcoSport from Turkey. Uh, they're talking about bringing in the Focus, uh, which is now no longer produced here in Michigan, uh, from China. Yeah. Um, and uh, GM brings in the Envision uh, from China as well. Um, so all automakers are global, um, and they're, it's not just their uh, assembly footprint, but their supplier footprint. And this could be very destructive to their relationships with their suppliers right. who are used to a certain process. And that could mean higher prices for the automakers to buy from the suppliers. And obviously that gets passed on. So, Alan, who is actually arguing for these? I mean, who's lobbying President Trump saying this is a fantastic idea? Uh, that's an interesting question, because I think it's much more from the political side than it is the business side. Uh, you know, this is uh, obviously some of the uh, labor organizations might be comfortable with this, but I say might because of the uh, the unintended consequences. And of course, the other thing, using this national security uh, law as part of the justification creates a whole lot of problems in terms of legal and trade policy. And of course, this is a, a, a cliche, but it's true. Business hates uncertainty. And this is clearly uncertain. Alan, is it possible that this is also somehow entwined in the ongoing NAFTA negotiations? Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, that is uh, for uh, all of the automakers, uh, that's a critical thing. You know, I was reading something this morning, uh, and it said that 8 million vehicles are, are uh, imported into the U.S. And I looked at that and said, oh, that's crazy. And then I realized that they were talking about Canada and Mexico, which were half of that. Um, and, you know, it, we don't even think of those as imports. NAFTA is obviously a fact of life. Um, and so, yes, there are 4 million imports from outside NAFTA, uh, but uh, clearly the NAFTA process is, is absolutely critical to the industry. And again, I go back to the supplier base uh, where, uh, uh, you know, the automakers have said, if you want to supply us, we want the Mexico price or the China price. And uh, oftentimes that has meant suppliers have uh, opened up uh, new plants in low cost uh, uh, locations. So, Alan, uh, when you head into Detroit and meet with people at the uh, big U.S. car makers, is the feeling that this will all just settle down and that it's mostly just a trade negotiation tactic or is there real fear? 
Well, the, the you know, there's so much uncertainty day to day in what the policy is. And I go back to my cliche. I mean, look at the fuel economy situation. The automakers want some relief, but they didn't want relief that would uh, get the hornets going in, in California to to get legislation. Uh, to get uh, lawsuits going and more uncertainty. And so now they're saying, wait a minute, we didn't really mean that. We just wanted a little, little things on the edges here. Please don't, uh, don't, don't throw the whole system in, into disarray. Right. Alan, and, thank- and that's, that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's always fun having you on. Alan Baum is the principal of Baum and Associates, which is based in West Bloomfield, Michigan, uh, and is a firm that's focused on automotive uh, research for the analysis of auto sales. A really interesting discussion and uh, definitely uncertainty, the word of the day and the year, maybe the decade. Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, is uh, set to uh, sign a uh, revamp of uh, Dodd-Frank financial legislation. He is expected to sign that at the White House. We will, of course, bring that to you live. Uh, The final vote in the House uh, was... 258 to 159 in favor. It was a bipartisan uh, Senate-crafted bill and is designed to loosen regulations for many community banks and regional lenders, including custodian banks such as State Street. Here to tell us more about this is our own Arnold Kakuda. He is our banking and credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Arnold, thank you very much for being here. Uh, Maybe just tell people a little bit about, I believe there's sort of three areas that this is really going to affect. Yes. So uh, this bill is actually, it's, it's more about helping the regional banks. So anybody really under $250 billion of assets, right? So uh, basically the systemically important financial institution threshold, uh, which used to be $50 billion, is now going up. So what, uh, up to $250 billion. Basically what that means is less regulation for those banks that fall between this 50 to $150 billion. Now, for some of the bigger banks, like, uh, you know, I look more at the um, the U.S. systemically important banks. So in that area, uh, State Street and uh, Bank of New York, they're going to get some uh, capital relief in terms of, um, you know, not counting central bank deposits at, at the Fed and the ECB from their denominator of, of a ratio, which basically it'll help boost that ratio for yeah. those banks. So. So uh, definitely a help to some regional banks. And people have been saying that we might see a consolidation in uh, smaller banks as a result of this. I want to shift gears a little bit because we are seeing uh, the shareholder meeting of Deutsche Bank unfold and uh, it shares down nearly 5% in Germany, uh, you know, right now after announcing that it would uh, cut more than 7,000 people. I think one big question is, what's its plan? I mean, what's its strategy? What does it want to be? Yes, we know it wants to cut costs. What next? Well, so it's it's funny because it was supposed to be no more no more crying, you know, faith in Christian. But you know, I, I guess uh, you know, even though investors got what they wanted, uh, still you know, do what do what they say. Still don't like it. So uh, the strategy is, um, you know, today was kind of a reiteration, kind of filling in the blanks of, hey, you know, the new CEO came on board and said, hey. 
we're going to shift focus, you know, cut um, our reliance on the corporate investment bank, but it's, it's only just a little bit, right? So they're, they're currently, uh, 2017, they had about 50% of revenue coming from the corporate investment bank. By 2021, that'll be, you know, uh, sorry, uh, they had 47% from non-CIB, that'll go to 50%. So it's really only a small shift. And in terms of the, the cuts uh, coming in equities, uh, 25% of headcount there, that, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense there because, you know, that's an area that they've lagged. Um, technology, um, I guess, investments were lagging there. Um, and I think that carries over into the whole firm where, where you're seeing leaks of, oh, they had, you know, posting collateral of, of a couple, you know, dozen billions and stuff while, you know. They, uh, these were huge mistakes. They accidentally transferred millions, in some cases, billions of dollars to other places mistakenly and had to, you know, beg for it back. I mean, they, they say they caught it in a few minutes, but, you know, just this kind of stuff happening is, is uh, a little bit baffling, to be honest. So, um, you know, it, it just goes to underscore kind of the, the, the investment in technology that has been lacking. And, you know, even as they're cutting back, they still need to do this kind of stuff, right? So even though it may be in cash equities where it makes sense to pull back, you know, in, in other areas of the firms, they still need to continue this um, technology investment just to keep up and, and comply with regulation, right? So Arnold, what kind of bank would Deutsche Bank be after they uh, eliminate these 7,000 positions? Well, I mean, so the thing is, they're, they're, they're scaling back to not be global everywhere, but they're still going to have a big presence. So it's kind of like, you know, they're trying to show, hey, we're doing something, but you know, to some, it may feel like it's not enough. And and, and I, I guess you know, you see that today where the stock is down almost six percent. And um, you know, so so they are saying, hey, we are cutting back, but you know, the, the, but are they doing this for the shareholders, or are they doing this because they have an internal vision of what they really believe Deutsche Bank can be in the next three to five years? Uh, yeah. So they, they have to do this in terms of. Um, the, the problem with Cryon, they said, is, hey, there was a vision- John Cryon, the former Co chief executive, he's replaced by Christian Saving, correct? Yeah, yes. So um, the problem with him is, okay, fine, he set us on a course, but he didn't execute uh, in terms of the, the cost implementation and things weren't going fast enough. So, um, you know, going with an insider, Christian Saving in, in this case, um, kind of, it, it's really a continuation of the strategy almost, although it's putting more hard numbers. And, you know, so, so for him to execute, he has to come in at this, you know, 23 billion of costs for this year, 22 billion next year. And, but it's, it's only, you know, maybe going down to 21 billion by 2021. But in terms of, what is your profitability at that standpoint? And, and, and the whole issue is uh, for Deutsche Bank, they don't have like a great thing outside of uh, the corporate investment bank. Uh, asset management, yes, good, but it's very small. They, they IPO'd a quarter of it. Um, but you know, unlike like a UBS or a Credit Suisse, which said, all right, we're gonna scale back the investment bank trading. Oh, wow, this, we have this great wealth management business, highly profitable and uh, you know, a steady business. For Deutsche Bank, what you have is core Germany, and the returns there are very meager, right? And so, and, and they're kind of more going into there with, you know, the um, they, they had the strategy reversal of, okay, initially they wanted to sell post-bank. They, they, now they're, they said they're going to keep it, and now they've more integrated it yeah. with their with their core blue bank in Germany. So, uh, but but they are making progress there, right? So they, they are making progress there. And, and so, you know, they expect going forward that they'll have some expense savings down the line. Um, and, and in terms of kind of, adding to the pool of profitability, they can add the uh, post-bank um, profitability to, to help pay for their 
um, you know, additional tier one coupons, their their AT1 cocos. Yeah, talking about uh, their cocos, I'm looking right now at their six percent uh, perpetual bonds uh, that uh, mature. Well, they're perpetuals, uh, and I remember people were watching these back in uh, early 2016. They tanked uh, on concerns that Deutsche Bank would have to raise more capital, and these could potentially be wiped out. Uh, they since recover their value, but they've been declining. And I'm wondering what this means. Does it mean that uh, that investors think that perhaps Deutsche Bank will be forced to raise more capital again and that they will uh, somehow be pressured on that front? Well, there is definitely concern, right? Um, you know, in, in the U.S. market, I follow the seven and a halfs and stuff, but the, the DB seven and a halfs and uh, basically that that's down 10 points on the year. Right. And uh, peaking at about 107. Now it's about 97. So it's kind of steady decline. And, you know, That's one. Significant. Yeah. But I mean, still trading about par. So it's not like, OK, hey, you know, there, anytime it's not going to go bust anytime. But, you know, when at your annual shareholder meeting where you're like, where the CEO is like, we intend to pay the coupon. I mean, that's not a great signal, yeah, right? Yeah, um, but that's the big news is that we're going to remain current on our debt. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, so, um, but, but but the concern is, hey, if you have a bank that, you know, past three years, you've had uh, negative earnings, right? And, and so basically you're in search of profit. And so the, the pool to pay these profits you know, unless your firm is profitable, you're not adding to that, right? So there definitely is concern that, hey, maybe, you know, there there might, you know, the, the firm might have to kind of um, stop paying coupons, right? And, and so there is legitimate concern. So in terms of where their capital is right now, um, they're about 150 basis points above kind of where they need to be for 2019. So capital looks okay, but but you have to remember, you know, last year they did an $8 billion capital raise, right? And, and so Deutsche has a history of setting targets, kind of falling short, and then saying, oh, we don't need capital. Oh, huge capital raise, right? So you can't have this cycle repeating, and, and I think that's why you have this new CEO in place, and hopefully he can you know, turn the ship around. But even even the target that you're aspiring to in 2021 is not not all that awe-inspiring. And, and I think you know, the, the, the 6% stock down today, the reaction to that is you know, it's not an awe-inspiring target, but can you even get there, right? That's, I think, the issue. Uh, Arnold, just a, just a one last thing on, on Deutsche Bank. I'm looking at various league tables, whether it's U.S. investment-grade corporates or high-yield or even European uh, bonds, uh, loans, equity or offerings, and so on. They're not in the top. They're, they're not number one in anything. Well, I mean, fixed income is, is where they're strong at, right? And uh, But, you know, they, they have lost uh, talent over the years. Um, I, I guess looking back, you can say, hey, you know, they had a lot of really good entrepreneurial uh, folks, you know, who, who were able to find, you know, ways to make money, but, you know, at what cost, right? And, and I think that's what they're paying for right now is, hey, you know, maybe sometimes the, the right compliance was in place or, or sometimes they, they you know, they, they kind of bordered on the close of the edge. And so, but, you know, fixed income is, is still an area that they're strong in, although, you know, kind of they, they did announce they're going to pull back in U.S. Uh, rates, but some, you know, in the credit, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a strong area. Structured credit, uh, that that's what they're gonna, you know, still keep. And and they say they still are gonna maintain a global presence. So, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, an important story. We will continue to follow it. Arnold Kakuda is a banking and credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking Deutsche Bank on this day when they do have their annual shareholder meeting.
Uh, what we also are waiting for from the White House and from Congress is some kind of infrastructure bill, uh, which we had been talking about, and then it kind of uh, died down as we talked about everything else. Joining us now is someone who knows a lot about the needs of the U.S. infrastructure, Gary Namek. He is Vice President of Engineering at American Water, based in Voorhees, New Jersey. Gary, thank you so much for being with us. You know, uh, we've heard uh, not that much about the infrastructure plan that we have in this country. Do you have a better sense of what's happening and what needs to get done when we talk about the aging infrastructure of the United States? First, it's a pleasure to be here. Happy happy to be with you. Um, The infrastructure situation is one of with a, a lot of needs and a lot of support among the among the public and I think it's fair to say that um, to solve our problem it's going to take uh, a unified effort not only from the federal government but also uh, local funding and private capital sources the American uh, Society of Civil Engineers uh, came out with their report and it rates our drinking water um, uh, infrastructure as a grade D. And so we we have work to do. Now, I'll also say, that, to use a bad pun, the glass is maybe half full, is that we're blessed in the United States with uh, plentiful supply in many places. And you can go uh, many places and not worry about the quality uh, of the water you drink. But our infrastructure is aging. Uh, we are facing um, the extreme weather events that our water systems need to be resilient to. So so we have our challenges, uh, and it's going to take continued funding to, to meet the need. Gary, is the infrastructure that exists in the United States ready to withstand an upcoming hurricane season? One of the uh, one of the unique things about drinking water is that it's so local. There are fifty thousand water utilities across the country because water is so heavy to move. It's not like electricity where you can send an electron from you know Florida to Michigan. So it's all local. So fair fair answer to that question is that many places are, are ready, but there are there are probably towns that uh, need to do work to be ready. Uh, for that. Um, my company, American Water, we're, we have a continuous uh, investment program, capital investment. We're going to be investing over $7 billion over the next five years for these type of preparedness things, both the sustainability and the resiliency of our assets. Gary, you also formerly worked at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, putting money into the infrastructure is one thing. Having uh, oversight and making sure that the regulations are such that people are insured to get clean water is another. I'm wondering, do you feel like uh, the current EPA is doing what it needs to be doing to make sure that uh, Americans have clean drinking water? Um, I, I think the the EPA and speaking mainly on the health protection side, uh, the EPA I think has been uh, proactive uh, and, and and appropriate. There are there are ninety contaminants that are regulated, and there are many others that they're giving health guidance. And for utilities like ourselves, we take that guidance and we proactively uh, try to take measures that are protective of the, of the customers that we serve. Gary, is there any estimate as to how much needs to be spent in order to secure the nation's infrastructure? 
Yes. Um, there have been several studies. Um, EPA has done one, the American Water Works Association, also the American Society of Civil Engineers. They've come up with slightly different numbers, but they all converge around a really, really big number, somewhere around a trillion dollars over the next uh, 20 to 25 years. And the perception is that the amount of investment uh, on average in the U.S. that's happening is probably about half of what the long-term sustainable target should be. So there is what is called the infrastructure gap. So uh, I'm just wondering, you, you said earlier that uh, water and sort of whether there could be a disruption really is a local issue. And I'm wondering, given the fact that we have seen uh, some climate disruptions and increase in the amount of hurricanes, et cetera, I'm wondering whether there are certain regions in the United States that you view as more vulnerable to some sort of disruption in the face of uh, some storm or, frankly, just rising tides. There are certainly um, areas like coastal cities that have uh, the uh, potential impact from uh, climate change and sea level rise. But uh, our our company, um, American Water Works, serves over 200 water systems all across the country. So we see it all. And, and I think just about everywhere, there's something we need to be worried about. By, by its nature, water plants are near, near rivers very often. This is comforting. So subject to, to, to flooding um, or, or droughts or you know, wildfires out west. Well, to comfort you a little bit, again, because many <laughs> utilities are doing the proactive investment. I'll give you an example. We have a treatment plant in central New Jersey, which was built in the 50s with a flood wall. However, um, the storms have been uh, higher than they used to be. And so we're investing $37 million to raise the flood wall above a level um, the historic level to protect it in the future. So it's really all about this proactive uh, investment um, by cities, by uh, companies like ours to be to be proactive on on many of those needs. Gary, would the creation of an infrastructure bank at the federal level be useful to jumpstarting much greater expenditure of money on the private side? to help infrastructure be improved? I think it can be. I think it's an all-of-the-above uh, solution where um, uh, f- federal funds or and or uh, things like um, uh, loan guarantees by the states and so forth, they can leverage that funding to bring in higher amounts of investment is all, uh, is all a positive step. Uh, the need is so big that it's going to take an all-of-the-above uh, commitment. Uh, local communities are going to need to recognize the true cost of the service and the true cost of, of uh, investing in it. And the federal government can, can as you said, help jumpstart that. All right. Since you're an expert in water, I, I need you to admit something on, on public radio um, right now that anyone who grew up in New York and has traveled to Florida knows. New York City has the best tasting water, doesn't it? Um, I've been uh, told that we have some places we might give you. Uh, we might give you a taste test run for the money. Oh, really? Where? Uh, oh, um, I'm trying to think where we've won awards. I know we've every, every, states generally have a best tasting. I think we may have won. There are? In, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we have uh, best tasting awards. Um, all a matter, I guess, of palate. Uh, New York certainly uh, certainly was strong because it was an upland source. So uh, uh, I guess a lot of people would uh, would support your conclusion. I think we're going to leave it there. Very diplomatic. Well done. Gary uh, Naumick is the Vice President of Engineering for American Water and uh, also a pretty good water taster, I would imagine. uh, New York absolutely has the best tasting water. I mean, compared to Florida, certainly. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.